0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1, where we'll be in verses 14 all the way to the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 1, we'll be in verse 14, and we go all the way to verse 45. I thought it would be good to give a little bit of context, since it's been over a month since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark's Gospel it is written by John Mark. He's a companion. He was a companion of the Apostle Peter. And this is the first gospel written of the four gospels, and Mark's gospel is also one of the three synoptic gospels, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they have uh, many of the same stories and in a similar sequence. The breakdown of Mark's gospel can be, you know, categorized in chapters one to eight focuses more on Jesus' identity that he is the Messiah. And it uh, culminates in Peter's confession that he is the Christ. Well, after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, there is a turning point in the book where chapters 9 to 16 focuses more on the purpose of Jesus coming as he explicitly makes known that he came to die and resurrect from the grave. And I think it would be really important for us to remember that Mark is presenting Jesus as the servant king, which is why Mark focuses a ton upon the ways that Jesus serves. And so we see that um, his acts of service finds its culmination um, in Mark ten forty five, where Jesus makes known that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so before we dive into our text this morning, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity where we can open your word. And God, we pray that as we open your word, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your word. For Lord, we would have no understanding unless your Holy Spirit illumine us to this text. That he would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Father, we pray that Christ will be magnified. God, that we would sit under the word, that we would behold your son with the authority that he has, that he is the king who um, brings in the kingdom. And Father, we pray that God, that you would guard us from distractions, that we would have ears that hear. And that we would be transformed by your grace. And that we would long for your son to return. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely? You see, this phrase, it conveys a fear of power. You know, seeing that if man were to have power and have absolute power, then it will lead to absolute corruption. But one of the things that this phrase misses is that it's not that power corrupts, but rather power exposes the corruption in fallen men. You see, um, history has proven and shown and displayed that man, power in the hands of sinful and fallen creatures can lead to corruption because we have the propensity to abuse authority. The thing is that it hasn't always been this way. You see, when God created everything in the Garden of Eden, when he, and we created all creation, everything was good. And he um, created Adam in his own image, and he had given Adam dominion and authority over his creation. But the thing is, Adam had voluntarily rebelled against God and brought corruption and sin into the world. But also, one thing about the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, well, it is not true of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus, he possesses absolute power and authority, but it doesn't corrupt. Rather, it is for our good. Rather than corruption, Jesus' authority, he brings restoration to what sin has ruined. You see, his absolute authority and power is for our good. And we will see that in our passage this morning. And so before we get into the passage, I'd like to give us our big idea, and our big idea is this, that King Jesus' authority demonstrates the nearness of God's kingdom. I'll say it again, King Jesus' authority demonstrates the nearness of God's kingdom. And in our passage, we will see him exercise his authority in three ways. First, we see him exercise his authority in calling people to repent, calling people to turn as he preaches. Secondly, we will see his authority in casting out demons. And third, we will see him exercise his authority in curing the sick. So he exercises authority authority as he preaches and calls people to repent and calls people to follow him. And then also as he casts out demons... And as he cures the sick, so our first point is his authority. As he calls people to repent through preaching, look at verse fourteen. It says, "After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God." The gospel of God. You see, the ministry of Jesus, it begins after John was arrested, and he was arrested because he confronted Herod consistently for Herod marrying his sister-in-law, and um, Herod's own sister-in-law, and we see that in chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. And as Jesus' ministry begins, it says that he went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, Jesus' public ministry begins with him preaching. Jesus was always preaching. You know, in his public ministry, he's always preaching. He went to every he went everywhere and he was preaching and teaching. You see, Mark doesn't necessarily reveal the discourse of his content. But Mark makes it known that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was a preacher. You see, like John the Baptist, John the Baptist preached, but, but Jesus' preaching is different from John the Baptist because he is greater than John the Baptist. You see, he preaches with authority because he is the Son. In verse 14 and 15, it summarizes the message that Jesus preached. He preached the gospel of God. It was a, it was, it's a message of salvation. You see, it is a message of mercy. It is a message saying that God is initiating salvation through his son, where God is bringing redemption and deliverance. You see this good news. It was promised in the old Testament where he says, now the time is fulfilled. The time has come to fulfill the promise of redemption. And it will be brought about through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, The kingdom of God has come near. Yo, know, what is the kingdom and how does the kingdom come near? You see, the kingdom of God, it is the saving rule and reign of God, it is an, this eschatological or end times kingdom breaking into this age. And this, this kingdom of God, it tracks all the way back to the Old Testament. You see, God is king. He's king overall, and he reigns. And in Genesis 1 and 2, when he created uh, the world and he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, Eden was a temple garden. It was a place where his rule and reign was unchallenged. Well, Adam rebelled and... Um, sin against God, and death came through sin, and chaos came into the world, well, as when sin came into the world, God promised to send a deliverer, a redeemer who would reverse the curse, and the storyline of scripture traces, um, yeah, it anticipates the one who is to come, And so God makes known that he will bring his kingdom through the covenants. And so God makes a covenant with Noah after he floods the earth and spares Noah and his family. And then Noah rebels and Noah gets drunk and his nakedness is uncovered. And then God, later on, he calls Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham as he promises to bless him and and makes known that in Abraham's offspring, all of the nations will be blessed. But God also says that kings will come from his lineage. And then later in Genesis, we see that kings will come from the tribe of Judah. Within the book of Exodus, God, he rescues the children of Abraham as he rescues them and saves them from slavery in Egypt. He enters into covenant relationship with them where he makes them a, he calls them a holy nation. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be holy and they were to be a light before the nations to where like, man, they other nations see this holy nation set apart. But then also later on in Israel's history, God, he makes a, uh, like, well, Israel asked for a king, they get a king, Saul, God rejects, and then David becomes king, he's a man after God's own heart, and God makes a covenant with David that David will have a son who will reign on his throne forever, which is the promise of the Messianic king, and then um, after David dies, David's unfaithful, all David's sons are unfaithful, and the prophets begin to speak of this messianic king who would come and bring God's kingdom, and the prophets testify that the one who is to come, not only is he the son of David, but he is also God in the flesh. And in the book of Isaiah, we see even clearer that um, this messianic king, he will also be the suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people. And then God, he, as he does all this, as he's promising one who is to come, he says that he will make a new covenant with his people with better promises, where he will forgive their sins, and he will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and he will place his spirit within them, and he, they will be his people, and God will be their God. Well, this um, see, the new covenant, it is... As the kingdom comes, the kingdom comes through the new covenant that God promised. And as we see in the Gospel of Mark, as we see throughout the Gospels, and as Scripture anticipates, Jesus is the promised king. He is the messianic king whom the Jews have been anticipating, whom God has spoken of. You see, he brings the kingdom, and the kingdom has arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus. You see, in this kingdom, it is not of this world. It is spiritual, which is why one must, in order to get into the kingdom, one must repent and believe the gospel. You see, repentance and faith is the way into the kingdom, and repentance and faith, they are two sides of the same coin. You see, to repent means to have a change of mind. It is to have sorrow over your sin. It is to turn from your sin. And faith is to trust in and hope in and place your faith and hope and belief in the Lord Jesus. You see, at two sides of the same coin because when one repents, one also believes. As stated in the first sermon, this is the mark of the Christian life where uh, we're Constantly, ongoingly repenting, confessing, and believing. I think it's also important that we see that when Jesus says repent and believe the good news, um, those two verbs, repent and believe, they are in the present imperative tense in the Greek. What this gets at, what this means is that Jesus is commanding them to repent and believe. You see, he's preaching with authority and they are to obey this very command. You see, what, what Jesus is saying is that repentance and faith, its not a suggestion. It's not just a, a good idea or an option to consider, but rather it is a command. And to disobey this command is to disobey God himself and incur judgment for sin. And then also we, it's good for us to know that when he says repent and believe, it is for all people all people must repent and believe and it's because all of us deserves judgment for our rebellion and we are in need of deliverance we are in need of forgiveness of sins we're in need of salvation it's this very thing that jesus is coming to do you see so he will save us from judgment through taking upon god's judgment that we rightfully deserve on himself where he would be judged in our place and for our sins. And as we repent and believe, we will be pardoned, forgiven. We will enter into his kingdom. Look at verses 16 through 20. It says, As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And so here Jesus he goes along and he calls two brothers to be to to follow him. He calls Simon whose name is changed to Peter and Andrew. You see, and look how he calls them. He calls them while they're at work casting a net into the sea. You see they were fishermen, but Jesus he calls them to come after him, to follow him to be his disciples. And this call to follow him, it is one that is costly. You see, it is a call to forsake all. It's a call to radical obedience, to have a commitment of loving the Lord Jesus above all. And they understood it, as it says, they immediately left their nets and followed him. You see, they didn't consult, Uh, they wouldn't try to evaluate, They, they heard the call and they responded with obedience. Immediately they left him, forsook all. And the very same thing happened with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You see, when the Lord Jesus in verses 19 and 20, when he called them, they left their father in the boat. They left the hired hired men in the boat. You see, um, following Jesus will mean that we may have to forsake our careers, our occupation, even family. Because we love him and we want to honor him. We put him of supreme importance. But then Jesus also makes known that what he will do for them, what he would do to them, he says, I will make you fish for people. You see, Jesus explicitly says it to Peter and Andrew, but it's also implicit, implicitly implied as he speaks to, as he calls James and John. You see, he will make them become fishers of men. They will have a new occupation. And it will be very similar to what they are used to doing as they are now fishing, um, as they go out and seek to catch fish. Well, now, as Jesus disciples them, they will eventually go out and seek to catch men. And the way they would do it is through the preaching of the gospel. Well, how will Jesus make them fishers of men? Well, they will see him fish for men. You see, he fished as he preached and preached the gospel and called people to repentance. As his disciples saw them do that, they will learn what it means to fish for men. And, and it also, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he would send them out. But then, after his resurrection from the grave, he will commission them. And if we read them, when you read the book of Acts you would see that they preached the gospel. And as they preached the gospel, they were fishing for men. But then also, it's good for us to know, it's important for us to know that, you know, the responsibility to fish for men, it is for all disciples. You see, all followers of Jesus are to be ones who preach the gospel and make disciples. You know, we we fish through evangelism. We seek to help other people follow the Lord Jesus. You know, as this uh, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever would say, he'd say, "If you say you follow Jesus, but you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you follow Jesus." You see, all Christians have the responsibility. To fish for men, to proclaim the gospel, to help other people follow Jesus, to tell people about Christ that they may, and calling them to repent and believe. In fact, this is the way that the gospel, the kingdom of God advances. You see, as we go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we call people to repent as they respond rightly to the gospel by the grace of God. They are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And they are part of the kingdom. They are citizens of the kingdom. And in fact, as churches preach the gospel, Christ still calls people to repent. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-20 says this, That God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making His appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. You see, and this is how disciples are made. As we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a quote many years ago that I've heard. uh, That says, always preach the gospel. And when necessary, use words. Friends. If we're going to make disciples, then it's necessary that we use words, because the only way that the gospel is preached is through, one, using words, testifying and talking about and explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that is how we fish for men. The gospel is not proclaimed unless you open your mouth and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's this very work that Christ has called us to do. So if we are to be followers of Jesus, then we must pray and preach and follow him in this very work. Look at verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 21. It says, they went into Capernaum and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. And so Jesus and his disciples, they, they go into Capernaum, they go into the synagogue, which is an assembly of people, and they assemble to hear the law taught. You see, um, sacrifices wasn't offered there. The word was only taught. Sacrifices were offered in the temple, and the word was taught by the scribes, who were the experts of the law. They were like the, They were like Harvard professors of the Torah. Look at verse, look at verse 22 says, they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. You see the crowd, they were astonished. They were utterly alarmed at Jesus' teaching. And the reason is because his teaching is unlike what they're accustomed to because he taught with authority. You see, he taught in a way that to obey his word is to obey God and to disobey his word is to disobey God. You see, that is the type of authority that he taught with. He taught with authority in a way that his words is equated to the authority of scripture. You know, it's like the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord Jesus says, man, you have heard that you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. And after both of those, he says, but I say to you, but I tell you, what he does right there is he equates his authority to the authority of scripture. And so he teaches with authority because he possesses authority. And he possesses authority because he is the king. He is the son. You see, his teaching bears weight on them. It is to summon a response of repentance and faith and obedience. This authority that he has is because he's the son it has been given to him from God. Because he is the son. Because of who he is. And so we see... The Lord Jesus, he exercises his authority in preaching and calling people to respond, to repent. And now we see him exercise his authority in casting out demons. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." And so Jesus, as he is teaching, he is confronted by a man who is possessed um, by a demon. And demons, they are fallen angels, Satan's minions. And one thing to be clear is that this happens very often in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is constantly, constantly confronted by demons. And what this is, is this is a picture of, you know, the kingdom of God going up against the dominion of Satan. You see, what we have here is Jesus, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, is up against and confronted by a man who is possessed by a demon. In verse 24, we see a few things about demons. We see that demons are intelligible. He says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, demons, they know who Jesus is. And they recognize him as the divine son, which is why they call him the Holy One of God. And they are terrified because they know that their doom is sure. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 makes known that um, the eternal fire is prepared for Satan and his angels. And so they know that they do not stand a chance against the Lord Jesus. They know that they will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus. And look at Jesus' response. Verse 25 and 26, it says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. You see, Jesus, he rebuked the demon and cast out the demon by speaking directly to him. You see, Jesus demonstrated his authority in teaching. Well, now he demonstrates his authority over demons. You see, he has authority over the spiritual realm. And he, as he commands demons, they submit to him. You see it shows that Jesus he is greater than the demons. He is greater than Satan. You see they Satan and his minions are Jesus's enemies. But they're not equal. You see it's like um it's like Mike Tyson in his prime versus an amateur boxer. You see an amateur boxer would defeat us just like Satan is stronger than us, but that amateur boxer is no match for Mike Tyson. When he was in his prime, you see, Tyson would win by a technical knockout with only one punch. Well, what we see here is that the Lord Jesus is infinitely greater than Satan and his minions because he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't tussle with Satan. Rather, he TKOs him, but not by swinging, but by speaking. And this happens so often in the gospel where Jesus repeatedly casts out demons. And what this is, is displaying Jesus' authority. And we also see here a glimpse that, that Jesus will destroy the works of the devil. You see, he does it in verse 34 and all in verse 44, verse 40, where he is constantly casting out demons. You see, Jesus, he tells the demon to be silent, showing that he has authority. He can make the demon mute. And the demon doesn't say a word. But then in verse 25, that is very interesting, Jesus tells him to be silent. You know, he commanded the demon to not make known his identity. And he does the very same thing in verse 34 where he would not permit the demon to speak. Wouldn't permit demons to speak because they know who he is. And not only that, in chapter 1 verse 44, after Jesus heals a man of leprosy, he commands him not to tell anyone. And even in chapter 8 verse 30, the Lord Jesus, he commands Peter after Peter confesses him to be the Christ, Jesus commands him to not tell anyone. Why is it that Jesus wants his identity to be concealed? He is the king, isn't he? So why doesn't he want it to be known? Well, a few things, few answers. One, as it relates to demons, he will not have his enemies announce his person and work. You see, it's not done in faith And they oppose him and the kingdom. Secondly, you know, seeing that Jesus is the Messianic King. And that phrase, Messianic King, it came with connotations of military deliverance. Where people would assume deliverance from Rome by force. And it was this type of Messianic King whom the Jews anticipated. But Jesus, he is the messianic king, but he didn't come to deliver them from Rome by force. But rather, he came to deliver us from sin and judgment. You see, when he returns, he will judge his enemies. And this is why he demanded silence for, in, related to, in relation to his identity for a little while. But rather, after he rose from the grave, he commanded his disciples to not be silent but to tell everyone who he is to be his witnesses. Look at verses 27 and 28. It says, they were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. You see, The response of the people, they were astonished. They were amazed because they haven't seen anything like this before. He said they were amazed by the authority, Jesus' authority, as he taught with authority and then as he displays, demonstrates his authority over demons, as the demons submit to him. They are utterly astounded and confounded because it's just blowing their minds. They've never seen anything like this before. And nothing like that has ever happened again. (laughs) Where the Lord Jesus, he teaches with authority. He commands the spirit, this demons, and they obey him. And the proper response is submission, is obedience. Because his authoritative teaching, his authority over demons, it testifies to his identity, that he is the king, that he is the son of God. You see, he does what only God can do. look how they respond. It says, at once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. You see, they go and they tell everybody, everybody around, everybody in Galilee about what just happened in the synagogue. Tell everybody about what just happened as Jesus teaches with authority and casts out demons. And so we've seen his authority and we've seen him exercise his authority in casting out demons. But now we would see his authority in curing the sick. Look at verses 29 and 30. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with the fever. You know, so they leave the synagogue and they go to Peter and Andrew's crib and Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. And what do they do? Well, what would you do if you saw Jesus cast out a demon by speaking? You'd probably think that if he has the authority, if he has authority over demons... And he may have authority to cure people from illness. look what they do. They told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to teach. You see, Jesus, he goes and heals her by grabbing her by the hand and touching her, and the fever is just gone, by raising her, and the fever is gone. You see, this proves that he has authority to cure the sick. look at verses 32 to 34. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You see, when evening came, which signified that this is the end of the Sabbath, the whole hood came to Jesus, the whole, everybody. They came, they brought the sick, they brought demons who were possessed, and, and Jesus healed them all. It says that they had various diseases. Well, Jesus has the authority to heal people of all diseases. He has the authority to heal all because of who he is. See, he is the divine son, he, and the divine physician. He didn't go to medical school, but it's not a problem for him at all. You see, no disease was too difficult for him that he couldn't cure, but rather he would cure all. And as he does this, he is bringing restoration to what sin has ruined. You see, sin and disease are effects of the fall. And Jesus has the authority to restore one's health. He has the authority to cure. And friends, what a word we need to hear amidst this pandemic. That we can go to the Lord Jesus as he has authority to cure. You see, our, he has authority to cure, and our greatest need isn't a cure from sickness or some disease, but rather our greatest need is to be cured from the disease of sin. And Jesus is the medicine, but he also has the authority to cure physically. Now, just because he has the authority to, to cure physically doesn't necessarily mean that he promises in this life, that he will cure everyone physically. You see, he can, and sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't. And if you are struggling with sickness, I understand how this passage could be difficult for you because you have been praying for healing and Jesus hasn't yet healed you. Let me encourage you. Friends, I would encourage you to continue to pray in faith and trust Him, knowing that He very well may heal you. But also remember that as you pray and as He has not yet healed you, remember that He is a compassionate Savior, that He knows our weaknesses. Scripture says that He will not break a bruised reed, nor will He put out a smoldering wick. You see, he will comfort and tend to his people, even in our suffering. Scripture also makes known that that God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. We can also remember, it's also imperative that we remember that there is hope. You see, if you're in Christ The Lord Jesus will fully and completely completely heal all of his people when he returns. And we have this very hope as he has saved us from sin through his death and resurrection. He will return and when he returns we will receive the redemption of our bodies. Where the presence of sin and all of its effects will be done away with. So friends, we can trust Him even in our sickness, even as we await and long for that day of redemption where we will no longer be sick and the presence of sin will be done away with. Your verses 35 through 38. And these verses they are unique because they are between two, they are between healings. And what we see is that Jesus, he pauses to pray. You see, before he goes back to preaching and performing mighty acts, he prays. Look at verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Man. See, The Lord Jesus, he is the praying Messiah. You see, he delights in communion with God. And he is dependent upon God for strength and seeks the Father's will in prayer. You see, after a full day day of ministry, Jesus prioritizes communion with God and prayer. So much so that he would get up very early. And go to where he is alone and he will spend time communing with God in prayer. And it is convicting as I read this this week. I'm just like, man, Lord, I want to prioritize prayer in this way. Because sadly, it is shameful even to admit that there are times where I do not prioritize prayer like this. Where I'm not disciplining myself to seek the Lord in prayer, following our Lord's example. My prayer this week has been that the Lord would give grace to where I will just dis- follow the Lord Jesus' example and discipline myself to spend time communing with Him in prayer early in the mornings. You see, He's a praying Messiah, a praying Messiah. And um, also, think about. You know, George Mueller, who is a prayer warrior and a 19th century evangelist, he said this, that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. You see, the Lord Jesus modeled the very thing that George Mueller talked about that he was prioritizing that he would go and he would commune with God, that he would find his delight with God, he would delight in God, he would delight in God through prayer. And friends, may we follow the example of the Lord Jesus and George Mueller, that we would prioritize communing with God in prayer. And as he prays, we see in verse 36 to 38, the disciples come looking for him. It says, Simon and his companions searched for him and they went and found him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. You see, the Lord Jesus, his popularity is growing because he has healed many people. And their disciples are looking for him. They're looking for him. And then he, look how he responds. He tells them, we're about to go to the neighboring villages that he may preach the gospel. You see, Jesus is on mission. You see, he didn't come to physically heal as many people as possible and demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom of God. But rather, he came to preach and to call people to repent. You see, the authority to heal serves to authenticate his authoritative teaching, which should lead people to respond with repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he does, he goes and preaches. Verse 39, he went to all of Galilee. He went to all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You see, everybody in Galilee knows about Jesus. Well, Jesus goes all throughout Galilee preaching the gospel. And as he preaches, look what happens in verse 40. It says, Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. You see, Jesus, he is approached by a man with leprosy. And leprosy is a skin disease. And he, this man, he was unclean and an outcast. And in fact, when he was to be around people, he was, he was supposed to shout, unclean, unclean, signifying that he has leprosy. And that the people were to move away from him so that they would not contract leprosy. But this man, he, he goes and he begs Jesus to cure him. You see, he must have heard about Jesus' works and thought to himself that, man, Jesus could probably cure me. Look how Jesus responded. Verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. You see, the Lord Jesus, he is Moved with compassion. Jesus, he cares for this man. He cares about this man so much that he has compassion on him and that he cures him. See, Jesus, King Jesus, he is the compassionate Savior. You know, when you think about Jesus, how often does that word or does the description, the adjective compassion come to mind? Well, friends, he is compassionate. It was he was moved by compassion. What motivated this healing was compassion, this pity on this man's condition. And look how he heals him. He reached out his hand and touched him. You see, Jesus, he does the unthinkable by touching him, and immediately, verse forty-two says, the leprosy left him. The man was made clean immediately by the touch of the king. You see, he has authority to heal people. He has authority over sickness. And friends, what was really stunning about this is that healing people of leprosy is only a work that God can do. You see, in, in the Old Testament scriptures, we see two people who are healed with leprosy and both of them are healed by God. Miriam, who was struck with leprosy because of her sin and, and numbers, she is healed of leprosy at, by God after Moses prays. And then Naaman, who is a Gentile, he's a, he goes, um, here's, that he can go to Elisha, Elisha makes known what he must do, that he must dip himself in the water, and then Naaman goes, and and eventually Naaman goes and does it, and then God heals him. But in this passage, what we see is that Jesus healed the leopard, which this is intended to bear witness to who Jesus is, that he possesses the authority over sickness that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. But then also, it will be a good thing for us to see in this section that as Jesus heals many people, we are to see his care for people. We are to see that he not only preaches the gospel and cares for our greatest need, but he also meets other needs. You see, he preaches, cares for the soul, and calls people to repent. But he also cares for the body as he heals people of various diseases and heals the leper. You see, Jesus, he is compassionate. He cares for our souls, and he cares for our other needs. And we will see later on in the Gospel of Mark that he has compassion upon the crowd to the point to where he feeds the 5,000, and then he feeds the 4,000. You see, Jesus, he preached and he did good works. And the church is to reflect him in this very work where we are to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, caring for the souls of all people. But then we are also to be diligent to doing good works. You see, the, the good works is to bear witness that we follow Jesus so much so that when the people see our good works, Christ himself says that they will give glory to our God. And in fact, Titus chapter 2 makes known that Christ, when Christ died, he died to redeem us and cleanse us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And so saints, may we be faithful in preaching Christ, and may we also be faithful in doing good works. You see, this is what it means to love people, that we meet their greatest need by telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that we also serve and meet lesser needs, showing that we care for them, that we love them. Verse 44 says, "Telling, he tells him to tell no one. He says, seeing that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You see, Jesus, he commands silence and obedience to the law. And he's referring to Leviticus chapter 14, which God commands the sacrifices for cleansing you no, know, sacrifices for cleansing. But look what he does in verse 45. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. You see, the man went out and he told everybody. And which resulted in Jesus not being able to openly enter a town rather he's in deserted places and this is because like he doesn't necessarily want to be known as just the, the miracle worker you know he he wants people to believe that he is the Messiah that this is what um yeah that these miracles that these healings that he's ca- curing people is intended to lead people to hear him and see that he is the king that they would believe in him and be saved they will repent and trust in him. And friends, we see in this entire section of scripture the authority that Jesus possesses. He casts out demons and he cures the sick. And he, this, his authoritative works authenticate his authoritative message. And so people should repent. But it also testifies of his identity that he is God in the flesh. And it also shows. A demonstration of the nearness of God's kingdom as he is bringing restoration, as he is restoring what sin has ruined, as he is destroying the works of the devil and casting out demons. You see, here we see that Jesus is the servant king. In fact, Mark, what he is doing is he is writing an account of Jesus' life to show who he is that one may believe in Jesus. You see, the gospel—the gospels are um, evangelistic letters. Evangelistic letters telling people about Jesus, that they may repent and believe, that we may believe in Him. You see, this section shows that D- Jesus demonstrates the authority of the nearness of His kingdom. Well, not the authority, but he demonstrates the nearness of his kingdom by his authority. You see, the kingdom has arrived in the person of the king. And all of this is intended to serve as a foretaste of the age to come. You see, it's like um, when you go to Costco before the coronavirus, You know, see, they would have different stations in the back where you could sample food. And what was was intended in this is as you sample the food, your appetite was to be wet. That would lead you to purchase this product and enjoy your purchase. Well, Jesus, the servant king, he is demonstrating the nearness of the kingdom. And he went and died for sin and resurrected from the grave and he inaugurates the kingdom. And as we repent and believe and put our trust in him, we are brought into his kingdom. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are delivered from sin's dominion. And we begin to experience this aforetaste. We experience, you know, the we experience being in the kingdom. We are the first fruit of redemption. And as this happens, our spiritual appetites are to be wet that we should long for Jesus to return and consummate his kingdom. You see, when he returns and consummates his kingdom, all the effects of the fall will be no more. Satan and demons will be destroyed. Sin will be no more. Sorrow, sickness, and suffering will be no more. The earth will be renewed. And the saints we will be with our God forever. As the words of the great hymn, Joy to the World, goes. On that day, you see, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so what Will it be like when the Lord Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom? He has already made it known. Revelation chapter 22 tells us that there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, we are one day closer to that day being our reality for eternity. And so may we long and pray for the Lord Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. A Father in heaven, we thank you that by your grace you have sent your Son and as He inaugurates His kingdom, God, we are brought in through repentance and faith, delivered from the dominion of sin, saved by your grace, made citizens of the heavenly kingdom. O Lord, where we are free to walk in love and practice righteousness and walk in your ways and resist sin. Oh, Father, we pray that you would send your Son soon to consummate the kingdom, that we may be in your benevolent presence for all of eternity, worshiping you, worshiping the Lamb who was slain, the Servant King who brings the kingdom. Oh God, we pray that he will come soon. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.